you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to Genesis chapter 2 this morning. Genesis chapter 2. I invite you to open with me there. We're going to get there in just a moment. If you've been with us over the past few weeks, you know we've been in a series called Sex by Design. We've talked about a number of topics regarding sexuality and what the Bible has to say about it. And uh, we're going to continue in that series this morning. And today we come to an important topic when it comes to sexuality and the Bible and sex and our culture. Uh, today we're coming to the topic of homosexual uh, actions, homosexual practice. And uh, we are all connected in some way to this issue, I want to say first off. First off, there's no one in this room, and I think we all know it, that in some way we're connected to this issue. You have a friend, you have a neighbor, you have a family member, you have a coworker, or someone in your life who's gay, and we have this issue that is, uh, affects and, and certainly confronts many aspects of our lives, and maybe even someone in here this morning is, has thoughts or struggles with homosexual thoughts, that could be the case, but certainly everyone in here this morning needs, and we all need to process how to think about this topic and this issue. Because it's prevalent in our culture, it's all around you and it's all around me, and sometimes we never think about how to think about it. Historically, to be honest, the church as a whole, uh, when I say the church, I mean the universal church, Christian church, has not always done well recently responding to this issue. We've uh, sometimes as a church, Christians alienated and hurt a lot of people. We've spoken without love, which is not how we should ever speak. If you or someone you close to you has been wounded by a church's poor response, I'm sorry for that, and we need to do better. We need to do better when we talk about this topic, and I'll talk more about that in the end, but I hope to speak this morning in a tone of love and compassion as well as conviction and courage. You may say, maybe you're new to the church and maybe you're coming in here for the first time and you say, great, I knew it. All the church talks about is homosexuality. <laughs> uh, but I'll tell you, I've been the pastor, senior pastor here for eight years. Uh, I've been a part of the church staff for many more years than that. And though every year, and there's not a year that goes by that we don't talk about biblical marriage, there's not a year that goes by that we don't talk about what the Bible says about marriage and usually in some aspect of that sexuality. Um, and other times throughout the year we'll talk about it and certainly as it comes up through exposition of Scripture we'll talk about it. I don't think I have or... Um, pastor before me, I don't remember having a singular message on the topic of what the Bible says about homosexuality. So it's not something we talk about all the time. Uh, if you're here this morning, uh, I believe God has you here for a reason, and, uh, and God has something to say to us, and it is an important topic for us to talk about. It's a, it's a discussion that's in our culture, and we need to talk about things that are affecting our culture, especially when they are topics that are addressed in the Word of God. There are many people who have many thoughts on this issue, many who have weighed in on the topic, but this morning I'm here as a pastor, I'm here as a minister of the gospel, I'm here in a church. This morning I'm not interested so much in what the court has to say about this topic, I'm not interested so much 
than what talking heads on TV have to say about the topic or what other people have to say about it. This morning, what I'm concerned about, and I hope what you want as well, is to know what does God have to say about the issue? What does the Bible have to say about it? Um, You have plenty of other places elsewhere to hear what other people have to say about it. But the question is, what does the Bible say about this aspect of our sexuality that is very prevalent in our culture? So I want to talk about it, but I want to get at it by starting in Genesis chapter 2, because I want to frame this issue in the context of a larger biblical theology that has to do with the world. We're talking about sex by design, and perhaps you look at that uh, screen and all that jumps out at you is the word sex, but I think the more important words on that screen are by design. The more important words are the design and the designer that has been involved in this aspect of our life and in this aspect of our world. And so I want to go back and frame a biblical theology of the design of the world and the design of the creation that God has given to us. So I want to pick up, start in the beginning, Genesis chapter 2, and read verses 4 through 9, and then jump down to verses 15 through 25. So Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, the Word of God says this, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens... And no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. And there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air, He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother 
and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This picture of creation from the very beginning paints the picture of how God intended it and created his world to operate. A few years ago, we did the series Between the Trees, and we talked about the tree of life that was in the Garden of Eden. And at the end of time, what the book of Revelation talks about as the tree of healing for the nations that'll be in heaven. And we live our life in between those trees. But this morning, we're backing up to that very first picture in the garden and the tree of life and what life was like the way that God had originally designed it to be. And in that moment, there was perfection. And in that moment, way down there at that other tree, there will also be perfection. In between is the life that we live. In that moment, back in Genesis chapter 2, God created it the way he intended it to be. There was perfect relationship for humans, for Adam to Eve, for man to woman. There was a perfect relationship. No barrier existed between them. In fact, the last verse that I read said that they were naked and unashamed. They were naked and unashamed. There was no reason for shame. There was no reason for guilt. They were completely naked, vulnerable, exposed to one another, and there was no shame involved. Perfect relationship between humans. There's also a perfect relationship between humanity and God. It, the Bible says that Adam would walk with God in the cool of the evening. There was no distance, no barrier between humanity and God at that time and at that moment. Later on in, in Scripture, the Apostle Paul will write that at one time after death, we will see face to face what we only see now through a veil. Adam wasn't looking through a veil. It was perfect. He could be in God's presence with no veil between them perfect relationship between God and humanity. There was also a perfect relationship between humanity and creation. It was a perfect relationship that existed between humanity and creation. The man tended and worked the garden, but it wasn't tending and work like we know it. It was a perfect return. There was no loss of efficiency. There were no thorns. There was no, it, it, was, it was perfect. The ground operated just the way it was supposed to and produced just the way it was supposed to. And there was a perfect relationship with creation. And that's the way God designed it. And he put Adam and he put Eve in that place together. He designed man and woman to be there. And he says that this, uh, for this reason, a man will now leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. This is the way that God had designed it. He had designed it this way not for their pain, but for their pleasure, when you think about it. Gave them every good tree put them in a perfect garden, gave them companionship in one another. For those of you who are pet lovers, he gave them beasts of the field and had them name I mean, how, how great would that be? The beasts are just coming up, and he just names them. I mean, perfect relationship with creation. And, it's per, and, it, and it produced in Adam and Eve, there was this place there for their joy and for their goodness and for their grace and for the love that existed there. But of course, it did not last. Uh, we don't know how long it lasted, but at some point it came to an abrupt end. If we continue on into Genesis chapter 3 and re read verses 1 through 5, it says this. 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals and the Lord God, that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, the serpent said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. That's not what God said but that's what she said to the serpent. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And so Satan comes and he comes to tempt and he comes with a lie. And the sin is not in the temptation. The sin was not in Satan coming and tempting Eve. The sin was in how she responded and reacted to the temptation. And so Satan comes with this lie, and it's the, kind, the same two myths we talked about in the first two weeks of this series, happiness and boundaries. That if you go outside the boundaries that God has created and ordained, you will have more freedom and you will be more happy. See, God is just trying to squash your happiness. God is just trying to kill your happiness. And so if you will go outside of his boundaries and you will live, you will find more happiness and you will find more freedom. You will find you are like God. He was tempting him, her to live outside of those boundaries. Same temptation you and I feel in many areas of our lives. And certainly in the last few weeks as we've talked about in the area of sexual temptation, Go outside the boundaries God created and you'll find happiness. God's just trying to squash your happiness. But what he did is he took her eyes off of all that God had given them. He took her eyes off every other tree in the garden that God had provided. He took her eyes off of all the goodness that God had given and focused her eyes on one thing. The one boundary that God had set. And why did he set it? Because he was so committed. God was so committed to you and to me and to giving us the freedom to love him that he needed to make a way that we would know that we are choosing to freely love him even as he loves us. And so he put this tree in the garden because he gave us this gift of free will, this gift to choose to love him so that when we love him, he would know that it is a love that had a choice and so he puts this one boundary in there to create the possibility of real love with his creation. And so the woman is tempted, and you know the story, hopefully. She gives in to temptation. She eats of the fruit. She gives it to her uh, husband. He eats as well. And in that moment, creation is thrown off kilter from that moment on. And all that was perfect is suddenly tainted. The relationship from humans to God is tainted. No longer would Adam walk with God in the cool of the evening and see face to face. No longer would he be in that perfect presence of God that he knew prior to the fruit. Now there would be a veil. Now there would be a barrier. Now he would have to leave the garden, not to enter again. No longer would there be perfect relationship of humanity now there were fig leaves in the way. And even more so when God came along, animal skins that God sacrificed in order to cover their nakedness that they now were shameful of. 
No longer would there be a perfect relationship with creation. God said, now you will tend the land by the sweat of your brow and thorns and thistles will grow up from the ground. There will no longer be this perfect efficiency, the, world, the way the world was created to work and it's tainted. So the relationship with God, with other humans, and with creation is tainted because they went outside the boundaries of God. And so the rest of Scripture... The rest of Scripture is a story of God redeeming and calling back and making a way back to himself from the way that Adam and Eve and humanity had cut themselves off from God. The rest of Scripture tells this story of redemption. And it starts just a few verses later in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God is, is, is talking to Adam and Eve and to the serpent about what happens now because of these actions. And he speaks to the serpent and he says this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In this moment what you have is God revealing the first messianic prophecy or the first prophecy of a Messiah or the first prophecy that Jesus was going to come. But it's really two prophecies in one. It's the prophecy of Jesus' first coming, which we remember on December 25th and about a month or so, we remember the incarnation and the first coming of Jesus. But it's also the prophecy of his second coming, wrapped up all in one right at this beginning moment when things went wrong, when things got thrown off kilter. God in that moment reveals, this is not the end of the story. I have a plan, and here's a spoiler alert, in the end, I'm going to win. And in the end, it will be back the way I intended it to be, even though you have broken what I have made. In the end, it will be restored to perfection. And so he tells them this right up front, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And he says, he says to the serpent, he said, look, you're going to strike his heel. And that's the first coming. Because Jesus comes to earth and he's crucified on a cross. And God hanging on a cross, crucified, willingly laying down his life, should not be. And Satan feels he has a victory. And Satan feels that he's won. But it's short-lived. Of course, three days later, Jesus rises again. But that's not the ultimate victory. That's the beginning of the victory. The ultimate victory is in the second coming, which says, He will crush your head. And that comes at the second coming of Christ. That comes at the second coming of Christ, where Jesus comes again and says, history, this world, there's an end point. There's a line that gets drawn. And at that point, new heavens, new earth, it will be remade. And so that's the, that's the second prophecy. And he tells us all at the beginning that this is where it's going. But all this time in between is God's story of redemption, but it's also filled with the decisions of men and women who still have that same choice that Adam and Eve had, who still have that same gift of free will to choose to love God or not to, to choose to go after God or to choose to go their own way. And so as God is redeeming creation and making right what man has broken, there is still all these decisions in the midst where we live in this world where humanity 
chooses to follow and work within God's design or live outside of God's design. And so we come to the New Testament after Jesus came and some of the writings, and we come to Romans chapter 1. And if you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn to Romans chapter 1. And in Romans chapter 1, we come to Paul talking very much similar to the language of Genesis. We have, we have Paul talking about the results of choosing to live outside of God's design. Because even though the prophecy's been given, and even though God has spoken and revealed his word, and even though Jesus came and died, there are still those who choose willingly to live and reject God's offer and to live outside it. And Paul, in Romans chapter 1, is starting to speak to this idea of the results of what happens when you continue to choose to live outside of the design of God. And so he speaks to that beginning in verse 8. Uh, I'm going to pick up in chapter 1, verse 18, and read through verse 25 for now, and then we'll pick up in verse 26 in a couple minutes. So Paul says this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. In other words, Paul's saying, look, you can look at creation and know that God exists. You can look at creation and know that there's a God that you need to find out about, that you need to obey. He's specifically writing to many Jewish people who had the word of God given to them. They're living in Rome. They're Jewish people and Gentiles. They're living in Rome, and they had the word of God. The Israelites had the word of God given to them, and many of them still chose to reject it. And he's writing, and he's saying, they're without excuse, whether they're Israel or outside of Israel, whether they had the specific revealed word of God or the general revealed will of God, they know that there's a God. And then it says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So here's the result of living outside of God's design. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. What Paul is saying in this passage is when we live outside of God's design, when we choose to do that, and men and women are free to choose to do that, God has not taken that decision away from them. But when they choose to do that, he's saying, look, when you choose to live outside God's design, there's two exchanges that take place. There's two exchanges that take place. He says it clearly in this passage. One, you're exchanging God for an idol. The first exchange is you exchange God for an idol. You say, you say to God and you, you say, I, you know, I see God, I know God is there, but I am not going to worship him as God. I am not going to give my life over to him. I'm going to worship something else, someone else, and give my life to that. So when we live outside God's design, what we're essentially saying to God is you are not on the throne of my life. Something 
or someone else is. Now, we can think of an idol as a carved image of metal or stone or wood very clearly and very easily, but there are a lot of other idols in our lives that are not carved by our hands. Idols that might be in the shape of houses or jobs or people or sexuality or images or other things that we put in our lives that we exchange. We exchange God's glory for and we choose to live for something else. Paul is just saying that's the natural result. If you're living outside of God's design, that's what's happening. And then he says the other thing, he says the other thing you exchange is you exchange the truth of God for a lie. And that's what Adam and Eve did, right? God said, this is all for you. This is all good. And if you do it, you know, this is, you're living out of my blessing. You're going to enjoy it. And they said, no, we think we're going to take the lie of the enemy. We're going to exchange your truth for a lie that the enemy is telling us, and we're going to follow that. And God says that, that's what happens. You think you're wise, but you really end up being foolish. It reminds me of a couple months ago when I was walking through um, Harvard Square with, with, uh, with my son Isaac, and uh, he looking around at all the buildings and everything, and he said, you know, how did, how did this place go from this wonderful institution that was founded training ministers and pastors for the gospel to not that. <laughs> I don't remember the exact words he used, but he knew what he was saying in that moment, you know, not worshiping God. And it took me a moment to, to think about that, or what's the, you know, to formulate the response. But ultimately, I just said, well, sometimes when people gain a lot of knowledge, they start to think they're smarter than God. And they, they start to think, well, they don't need God. And I think that's what happened here. I think if I was to go back in that moment, I would add on Romans 1. People start to think they're wise, but they're really foolish because they've exchanged much of the truth of God for a lie. And Paul says that's what happens. You can make that choice. You can go after it. You, you don't have to choose God. God's made that available from Adam and Eve right through our day. You don't have to choose to follow him. But here's what Paul's saying. Here's a natural result. When you do that, you're choosing an idol over God, and you're choosing a lie over the truth. And then here are the results of that. Because God basically will say, you can go after that. You want to go after that? Go after that. You can do that. You can say, God essentially says, if you want my stuff, but you don't want me, you have the freedom to go after that. But there are consequences to that. He told Adam and Eve, you know, the consequence is death. Did they die instantly in that moment? No. But death entered in. So there's, a, there's this concept of being under the passive wrath of God. That it's coming, but it's not instant like Ananias and Sapphira. That was the instant active wrath of God. But then there's this passive wrath of God. You can go after it, but here's how it's going to end. It's not going to end well. And so Paul goes on. So here's the result of living that way. Verse 26. Because of this, because they chose to live outside God's design, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, because they exchanged God for idols, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Uh, let, let me go back one second first before I, there's one loophole I didn't close in that last aspect of verse 24. God gave them over to sinful desires of their hearts and to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies. I think it's important to notice 
right there. There are specific sins that Paul is about to mention, but he says in general, he gave them over to this sexual impurity. There were all kinds of sexual impurities that were a problem at that time, and all kinds of sins that were a problem. And uh, for any of us to read through this list and not carefully examine our own hearts, um, I think would be doing an injustice to the text. We need to think about things in our own hearts and sins, if there's any place we have gone or going outside of God's design, because this is what he says. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their woman ex women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are all full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So Paul says, here's the natural result. Here's, here's where this comes from. Here's, here's where this comes from. Because sometimes I think we can come to a topic like our sexuality and we come to it apart from the design, come to it apart from the idea of what it is, is a cosmic treason against God's boundaries and God's design. Because God has said, here's the way I designed it. Here's the way it operates. Here's the way if you're going to follow me that I have called you to live you are free to choose otherwise, but if you do, this is what's happening. You're living outside of my boundaries, and these are the natural results of it, and yet people will still choose to live in that way. Sin has moved us away from that created order and resulted in all sorts of acts that are contrary to the will and nature of God. The acts of sin that result from this are acts of trading the truth of God for a lie and trading God for idols. The conclusion here is that all sexual sin, including the sin of homosexuality, is contrary to God's created design. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is not only to save us from the sin we commit, but to move us as individuals and as God's people away from that behavior, which is contrary to God's plan, and towards a life that is in line with God's commands, in which is found the fullness of joy. And so God calls us to this. I mentioned earlier that from Genesis 3, 15 on, God has been setting in his plan of redemption. He has been setting in place his plan of making things right. And we're moving towards that. History is moving towards that. There is nothing anyone, you and I, can do that I would want to do or could do to stop us moving towards God's plan at the end of history. And there's nothing, no president 
or, or, or no weeder or no counsel or individual can do to keep us from heading towards God's plan. But in the midst of that, God is redeeming men and women and calling them to live lives redeemed and cleansed the way he is calling them to live them. Matt Chandler, speaking on this topic, pastor of the Village Church in Texas, um, gave a great sermon on this topic and was helpful, very helpful, and, and Pastor Brian and I even forming this, this message. He said, you know, when I was when I became a Christian, when I was told about Christ as a teenager, he said, I felt a little bamboozled. And, and he, said, he said, the reason is because when someone would talk to me about Jesus, they said, come to Jesus and things will get better, which is true. But it may not be the whole truth. Because it's come to Jesus and things will get better, but he's also going to ask you to die. And he's also going to crucify things in you. And he's also going to ask you to follow him and let go of things and follow th him in his life. And there are parts of you that he is going to, like a great sculptor, take a hammer and a chisel and want to knock them off. And that can be painful. But God is in that work of taking not only humanity and creation, but taking you as an individual from that place where you've made that decision to disobey and go your own way to that place where you are made and created and redeemed and in the image of Christ. And as he's doing that, the hard work of claiming every aspect of your life for his kingdom needs to take place. And so there's some place in your life where maybe you came to Jesus and, and you hadn't, you know, you hadn't cleaned yourself up yet because when you come to Jesus, he does the cleaning up. You know, we catch the fish, Jesus cleans them. And then he, he, he comes to you in this place in your life. He says, that's, you know, I want lordship of that place in your life too and that has to change. And that's not easy. But that's the work of coming to Christ. That's the work of becoming like Christ. The Holy Spirit is giving to us to strengthen us, to help us to do that. We don't have to do it on our own. But that is the hard work that God calls us to in redeeming us. There's no way that in one Sunday we're going to cover everything that needs to be covered here. I tried. Believe me, there are, we have a, I don't even know what it is, a 40-page document we put together uh, on resources on this message. But let me touch upon a couple things. We need to be clear that the Bible, all sexual activity that deviates from God's created order, including things like lust, pornography, adultery, sex outside of marriage, and yes, homosexual practice and activity is sinful. This conclusion specifically regarding homosexual activity is often and obviously uh, rebuffed in the culture and the world that we live in. So there's arguments that you'll hear. I can't address all of them this morning. Let me just touch upon a couple that you'll hear or you've heard um, and just address a couple of them and, uh, this morning as we come to a close um, on this message. One you're going to hear is, if you haven't heard it already, this is kind of a recent one, but it's definitely uh, at, the, at kind of the, the front edge of this, uh, that the Bible doesn't really say that. The Bible doesn't really say homosexuality is wrong. Um, and, you know, they'll interpret, there's about six passages in the Bible that specifically mention the word homosexuality. I would argue there's a lot more that talk about biblical sexuality and, and uh, indirectly address homosexuality. But there's six that actually 
six or seven that actually would say mention the word. And they would try and reinterpret these passages and say, well, this, no, this isn't speaking about homosexuality as we understand it today. That, that, that this, the idea that the Bible talks about is, uh, and this argument is often made, an abuse of homosexuality where there's a dominant and a submissive person without a choice, and that's what's going on here, and that's what the Bible's talking about, not talking about serial monogamy where two people are committed to one another like it's understood today. And the problem is that's just not historically accurate, and most scholars will represent that, and you can look at Plato's day, you can look at the days of the scriptures, and they had an understanding of this type of relationship existing, and the Bible never condones it. It just, it did, it's not something new to our day. I, I find it almost um, comical, but it's not if it wasn't so sad, but, but this idea that people would say, well, you know, we've, we've progressed so far. And I say, have you ever read the history of Rome? or Greece. We are not any place that they have not already been when it comes to sexuality in our culture. And, and, and there was ample understanding of this issue in the times of the writers of Scripture. And the Bible talks about it. For over 2,000 years, the understanding and interpretation of the Bible has been that this is not something that God would condone. For thousands of years before that, in the history of the Jewish people, that was the understanding. All three major streams of the Christian church would agree on this. Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant would agree that the right way to interpret Scripture, if you're going to be intellectually honest with it, is that this is not condoned. And that fact, the only thing, sexual practice, that Scripture condones and allows is that which takes place between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage for life. And those are the boundaries of God. There's nothing positive ever said about any other type of, out, uh, of expressing of sexuality, whether that's between a man and a woman outside of marriage, or whether that's between man and a man or woman. There's nothing ever positive said about any other sexuality in Scripture other than um, a man and a woman for life. And so, but this argument is out there, and I promise you, if you haven't seen it yet, you'll see it. You'll see it on Facebook posts. You'll see it, you'll see it in, as people will make it. Well, the Bible doesn't really say that. And I, I you know, I, I would encourage you to really look, not only what the Scriptures say, but look at all the uh, scholars that, when they're intellectually honest, will tell you uh, what it says. In fact, one, I'll, I'll give you a quote from this morning, Luke Timothy Johnson. He's a chaplain at Emory University. He would... Um, he would fall on the fact that, uh, that, that homosexuality would be an allowable practice for Christians. But he's intellectually honest enough to recognize that the Bible would not condone it. So he says this. He says, The Bible nowhere speaks positively or even neutrally about same-sex love. I think it important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex union can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience of thousands of others who have witnessed to, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is in fact to accept the way in which God has created us. By so doing, we explicitly reject as well the premises of the scriptural statements condemning homosexuality Namely, that it is a vice freely chosen, a symptom of human corruption, and disobedience for God's created order. As I said, Luke Timothy Johnson is not, would not fall on the orthodox view on this issue, but I appreciate that it at least is intellectually honest enough to say if you are going to honestly deal with the Scriptures, 
it says that this practice is not approved by God. Because you will hear arguments of people that try and say, well, the scriptures don't really talk about what we're talking about today. And it's just, it's just not true. Um, when you leave on the Connection Center, there's a, there'll be a sheet if you want some additional resources and additional scriptures and, and books that are helpful in reading on this that'll go further into some of these arguments. Another argument is Jesus never says anything about this. You may have heard this argument if you read uh, or if you heard from Barack Obama's book, The Audacity of Hope. He makes this quote. He makes this statement in The Audacity of Hope. Barack Obama says, I am not willing to accept a reading of the Bible that considers an obscure line in Romans to be more defining of Christianity than the Sermon on the Mount. It's an interesting sounding argument, but I have problems with it on many levels. First of all, there is nothing about Romans that is obscure. Romans is a pretty foundational book um, that, to our Christian faith. Not only that, but it's not the only place in the Bible that speaks about it. Uh, spoken about in the New Testament, the Old Testament, throughout the Scripture, in the moral law and the moral code of God. Third, the idea of elevating one part of Scripture and authority over another is not a legitimate way of interpreting any holy book, let alone what we would say the holy Scriptures of God himself. Every part of the book needs to be understood as being the Bible, as God's word. And also, I wonder if the president has read the Sermon on the Mount. There are some hard statements in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus didn't make the, if you've read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus didn't make the law easier. He, he made it heavier. He, he made it so heavy that you would have to come to the end of that and say, who can be saved? Because if even thinking a lustful thought makes you an adulterer, <clears throat> then who can be saved? And Jesus lays out <clears throat> all these different thoughts in there. And I wonder if the president has actually read it or that if he would agree with Jesus' statements on divorce or the other parts of Scripture, the Sermon on the Mount, that make the law heavier, not lighter. And yet, people would say, well, Jesus didn't say anything about it. Well, it's also, as you know, an argument from silence is not an argument um, to build a foundation on. Jesus was speaking uh, most, in, if not all, of his ministry was taking place within the context of Israel, uh, where this issue would not have been a primary issue in that time and in that place. Paul, Romans, writing to the Gentile world, lot bigger issue, lot clearer of an issue in the world that Paul was living in, just not as big of an issue or thing that the, the Jewish people that Jesus was speaking to were dealing with. So the fact that there's silence on that should not be that much of a surprise. Jesus never mentions bestiality, incest, or pedophilia, but no one would say he thought these were okay. When Jesus speaks of marriage, he affirms God's plan for marriage between one man and one woman. He quotes Genesis 2.24 in Matthew 19, 4 through 5, and Mark 10, 6 through 9. He affirms God's design for marriage. The Bible is the whole word of God. Jesus always points back to God's plan. Another argument that sometimes comes, I was born this way. I was born this way. There's a lot of research and debate on this issue. Um, I'm not going to go into all of that this morning, but I look at it from a biblical point of view. I say, when we come to it, I believe that each of us has struggles and temptations that we face in life. And what tempts you is probably different than what tempts me. 
And could some of those things that are tempting to us be a result of some innate bent within us? Of course they can. I became convinced of uh, nature and the power of nature over just strictly nurture when I had my second child. Because when I had the sec my second child, when we had our daughter, I realized that these two kids raised in the exact same home by the exact same parents, in the exact same place, going to the exact same school, around the exact same family, having the exact same experiences, were two completely different kids. And they struggle with different things, and they excel in different things, and there are certainly things in their character that when they come to sin and their struggles, there are things that my daughter struggles with that my son doesn't, and my son struggles with that my daughter doesn't. And they're not all a result of the nurture and the environment they, broke up, they grew up in. Some of them are this natural bent within them, part of their sin nature that bends them towards things that we are there to straighten out as their parents and put them in line with the Word of God. But there's this argument why I was born this way. Well, just because you have an urge does not make that urge correct. All urges are based out of some bent orientation. And whether or not the bent or the orientation is changed, that does not mean it should be acted upon. I said in the beginning, the temptation of Eve was not the sin. The sin was acting on the temptation, was her eating the fruit. The sin was in her response to the temptation. There may be people that are born with a bent towards addiction or towards anger. That doesn't mean we say, well, you were born that way, so you should live that way. It's this constant redeeming, becoming more into the image of Christ. And so we're constantly working against those bents. Every one of us has a bent towards sexual sin. We are sexual sinners. Romans 1 talked about that. You know, that there's, there's this bent towards sexual sin. The sexual part of us has been distorted by the fall in a huge way. And that part of us is often broken. Have you ever had a thought that was outside of God's design for sex? That's where Jesus says, well, that's adultery. There's a sexual part of us that's broken. It does not mean we should embrace those behaviors. I represent the largest group of sexual uh, problems in the world as a heterosexual male. Heterosexual males probably inflict more pain sexually on the world and on people on a whole more than any other group. We all have parts of us that are broken and the sexual part of us is no different, but it doesn't mean we give in to it. Time magazine not too long ago ran an article that said that infidelity may be related to a gene. Will any of us now come out and say, well then, you have to go commit adultery and it's okay because you were born that way. Of course not, or I wouldn't think so. But that's how the argument goes. Being born that way, uh, if it is even the case, all of us have things that we struggle with. Um, but that is, not the question, that is not a question of right and wrong. And so another argument that might come up when you're talking to someone about this is, so you're perfect. <laughs> or what about gluttony and divorce or other things, gluttony, gossip, those things that were in that list as well as homosexuality. And I would say the church should not overlook other sins to make homosexuality seem worse. 
It is to our detriment that we don't deal seriously enough with the other sins. Not that we should be overlooking this one. Where we are not treating sin as wrong, we need to change that. Anywhere people say, I know what the Bible says and I'm not going to do it, we need to lovingly address those issues. If there's places in your life where that needs to be addressed, um, then it's our responsibility to do that. I'm not perfect. I have all sorts of things in my life that God has been working on, that God is still working on. If you're a follower of Christ and if you're honest with yourself, you do too. Some of them God's been working on for years. Some of them he'll continue to work on for years. And I will not arrive until I arrive face to face with him in heaven. But I submit myself to the process. Dying to self is the duty of every follower of Christ. Another argument, so I'm supposed to be miserable for the rest of my life then. Absolutely not. Go back to Pastor Brian's sermon on holiness versus happiness. We all need to recognize that our purpose, identity, and fulfillment does not rest on what we can or cannot do sexually. Jesus is the fullest example of what it means to be human, and he never had sex. You can have fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. That's an easy sentence to say. I understand what it means. It is not an easy sentence to live out if this is what you are, the cross you are called to take up. I understand, and I want to be careful to say that's, that's an easy sentence for us to say. And if you are a heterosexual person who is not married and one day desires to be married, that is a different weight for you than for the person who says, I will never marry and experience that physical intimacy with a person because I'm going to live in obedience to God and his word and I don't um, feel like I can marry in a heterosexual marriage for some reason. And so they commit to living their way purely for God but never to be married, never experience that physical intimacy. I understand. I'm not trying to make light of that cross that God would be asking you to carry. I'm not trying to say that's easy. I'm not, and as I said last week, I'm not trying to say that you don't need lifelong companionship with people. We all do. We were designed for that. That you don't need emotional intimacy with someone. We all do. We were designed for that. But sexual intimacy, if we're going to live by Scripture, it's for a man and a woman alone in the covenant of marriage. I think many men and women who struggle, this is actually a quote from a book called Messy Grace. He says, I think many women, <clears throat> men and women who struggle with same-sex attraction conclude that because the struggle is so hard, God must not want them to continue resisting. He says, such a conclusion is about as far from historical Christianity as one can get. We all have to take up our cross. We all have things that God asks of us that may be against our natural Bent, but we are not called to live in the natural. These are just a few of the arguments that we hear. There are more. There are a lot more, and we can dialogue about those and talk with those. Maybe there's one that's come your way that, that you want an answer to that I have not identified today. I've probably thought about it. Pastor Brian and I probably have thought about it, heard it, researched it in the last um, few week, months. Um, so if that is the case, please feel free to dialogue with us or write down a question. Um, 
uh, and we can talk more about it. Can't do all of that this morning. Let me get them to a conclusion. And the conclusion I want to talk to you about finally is identity and authority. The question really comes from where do I find my ultimate identity and who is the authority? These are the questions we're really talking about. As followers of Christ, our identity is ultimately found first in him. Before we are a political party, our career, a nationality, or anything else, we are followers of Christ. Every person that I've read or encountered on this issue who claims to be a follower of Jesus and gay almost always uses the term gay Christian. And we went to the Q conference in uh, April, Pastor Brian and myself, where this was kind of a topic, looking at this from a Christian perspective and actually spawned the, the, these messages, series of messages, because we really felt like it needed to be talked to about in the church. There were many people there that would talk about it and try and make an, a, a defense for this idea that you can be a Christ follower and, and still live this homosexual lifestyle. And so often their hermeneutics were ultimately guided. It would come down to experience of either theirs or someone that they cared about, um, and their experience would trump Scripture. But they would almost always describe themselves as a gay Christian. I find that interesting. I, you know, I think it's telling because as a Christian, every person, we need to be careful that our identity is first in Christ and not in my sexuality. Um, and Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If our identity is in Christ first as a person created in the image of God, then whatever God says, I will do no matter how difficult it is. But I'll say this, the question of identity affects not only how we see ourselves, but how we see others. Those of us who believe that God says homosexual behavior is a sin must be careful that we do not identify people with labels, labels before we recognize who they are as individuals created in the image of God. When we look at people, which is first? Oh yes, he's gay or she's a lesbian. Or do we say that person is created in the image of God and is loved by that God in a far greater way than any of us could ever imagine? That I am a sinner in need of God's grace and so are they. But we are both created in the image of God and both equally in need of Jesus Christ. So just as I would say, to that person claiming to be a gay Christian, be careful and make sure your identity, where is your identity coming from? I would say to the Christian that as we reach out in love and grace to other people, be careful that we see people first as loved by God, as created by God in his image, as someone that Jesus died for, that if they choose to follow him and they choose to accept him, that they are redeemed in him. And as he does that cleaning up work in his, their life, to bring them into the, more into the image of Christ that is his responsibility through the Holy Spirit. And so I'd say be careful of your lens when you look at people, my lens when I look at people. What do I see first? What do I see first? As I see people through this lens, do I see first someone in need of God's grace condemned to hell apart from Jesus Christ? 
as I was, apart from the grace of God extended to me? Do I see them first as a person in need of grace from God? Authority, where does authority lie? Identity and authority. At the end of the day, arguments in favor of homosexuality often come down to experience. The problem is, here's what happens a lot of times. If we disagree, we're bigots, and we don't want to be bigots. So we say, at times, God could not want us to hold this belief. We know fantastic people, fantastic people who are gay, and say, how could God punish these fantastic people? I know many nice people who do things God wants them to change. I try to be a nice person and have plenty of things in my life that need to be changed. But the truth is, where is the authority ultimately going to lie? A son or a daughter comes out, and many parents will change their opinions and their beliefs and their convictions about this issue in light of what their child does and says. Ultimately, the question is, do we evaluate our experience in light of the Bible or the Bible in light of our experiences? Do we evaluate our experience in light of the Bible or the Bible in light of our experience? If we are Christians, then the Bible should be the authority over our experiences, not our experience over the Bible. And so ultimately, it comes down to identity and authority in our lives. Who's your, where did we identify, and ultimately what, who will be the authority that you and I live our lives by? One final note to us in the church. As I said in the beginning of this message, most of you in here probably aren't struggling with this issue. I don't doubt that somebody is. But most of you in here, most of us probably don't struggle with the actions of this issue. We do struggle with how to think about this issue. So let me finally close with words for us in the church that may not have a struggle with the issue about how to think about it. I've spent the whole message talking about what the Bible says about it, and I hope that's clear. Um, but living that out and acting on it is also important because God is on a mission to reach people for him. Being unloving to gay people in your life is a sin. One author said, also, it's a crying shame because it puts a barrier between people and the gospel. It's the opposite of being Christ-like. Jesus' command, Jesus' command to love your neighbor as yourself does not have an exception clause for a gay neighbor or, for that matter, for any other neighbor that we might find it hard to relate to. Is love sharing the truth at some point? Of course it is, but it's not only sharing the truth. Love, it's, it's doing that in the context of a relationship where you have gained permission to do that by being loving and exhibiting the love of God who, while we were yet sinners, died for us. Who, while we were yet living as his enemies, laid down his life for us. It is exhibiting both truth and grace. Again, one uh, author said, we need to stop thinking of, quote, unquote, them as the enemy. They're not the enemy. They're not even that all different from us. We, should be putting up, we shouldn't be putting up barriers or maintaining a safe distance from them. People are not the enemy. They are the mission. He said again, people are not the enemy. They are the mission 
of God. God desires for every person to come and to know of his love for them. Encourage us to avoid moral slang, demeaning jokes, comments. They're not helpful. If we are truly people, then we'll reach out in grace and truth and love for these people. Someone walking in homosexuality is not a worse sinner than other sinners. All of us are separated from God and condemned to hell apart from his grace. We must look at ourselves first. Our sexual sin must be dealt with first. I didn't say that. Jesus did. Speck, the plank. We're often looking for the speck in others' eyes. Make sure, as a church, make sure we have dealt with those things in our lives as well. Jesus on the cross rejects, uh, uh, moves us to reject idolatry and to worship God. Reject the lies of this world for the truth and move away from the unnatural sinful desires and toward the natural desires that God has put in place in the beginning. Final note, someone who might be in here struggling with homosexual attraction or if you know someone struggling with it, every one of us has to daily come to God and daily ask him for strength and grace to resist temptation and to follow him. Stir your affections for Christ. Guard yourself against temptations. Build accountability so you can shine a light into dark places. If you are pursuing Christ, you will always have a home here. Even if you stumble and fall, you will always have a home here if you are willing to fight. If this is your struggle, then please come and talk to us. We're interested in having a conversation. There's no way, as I said, we can cover everything in one message, but I hope that there's been something that may have been helpful to you here. I think one of the, as in all the books I've read, and there's been many of them over the last few months about this topic, I think one um, line from Scott Saul's book jumps out at me that he said, um, he's talking to his friend who was uh, gay, his friend who had come out to him, and um, and obviously it's a very vulnerable moment. And if you've been in that place where someone has done that, they're trusting you with something that they probably know you already disagree with, but they're trusting you with it and talking with them. And so this is a very, this was a moment that was uh, a difficult moment. And yet he was, a, he's a pastor, and faithful to what God says. And he, you know, he said through tears, and they sat there and wept through tears. He, he said, uh, this line that just stuck in my head these last few months. He said, for me to affirm the love of your life would mean I'd have to deny the love of mine. And I thought that kind of sums it up when it comes to this as a Christian, that we have to reach out in love and grace to people. But when it comes down to the end of it, I have to stay true to the love of my life, which is Jesus Christ, my Lord. And it's never wise to disobey your God and never wise to disobey and leave your God in this. And so I, I will love you. I will continue a relationship with you and in praying for you, but I can't affirm the choice you're making because I'd have to deny the choice I've made 
and the God I've chosen to follow. I can love and accept you in the love of Christ without approving of what you've done and what you're doing and try and continue to teach you about Jesus, can try and continue to reach out. Jesus was somehow able to be called a friend of sinners and also perfectly holy. I think we so lightly throw that term around, friend of sinners, because we think of tax collectors and, and zealots and, and, we, and because in our minds, we don't even understand the gravity of what that would have meant in that culture of Jesus being called a friend of sinners, hanging out at the house where good religious people did not go, hanging out in the places and talking with people at wells and at other places that good religious people did not talk to, and yet still maintaining his perfect holiness as the Son of God. And Lord, help us to be the kind of people that would maintain our perfect holiness in our lives and yet never fail to reach out in love and grace to people who need Jesus Christ. So we close out this service. I'm going to ask our music team to come. I'm going to... There's a lot here, and there's a lot that God may be working on your heart. I'm just going to say just a couple things that I'm going to encourage you to search your heart and search my heart about. One is this. Perhaps there's, in, in relation to this particular topic, there's maybe some God's dealing with you. Maybe you have a same-sex attraction that you've been wrestling with, and, and you've been attending here, and, and, and you've been asking, and, and you've been asking God to deal with. Maybe this morning you've got to deal with that, and, and you've got to make a decision about who the authority is going to be in your life and what your identity is going to be. And, and I pray that God will give you the strength that, and, and that, today you will find freedom in Christ and I pray that that would be the case maybe you're a Christian here and you would look back and you say you know what when it comes to this I have operated more in fear than out of love more in hatred than out of love more in fear than out of grace and this morning I want to commit and ask God to help me to reach out to everyone in my life who does not know Christ and needs to know Christ, even those neighbors who are very different from me, and that I would trust God to work through me to love them and to share Christ with them when it's open and the right moment to do so. But finally, there's this. Every one of us has places in our lives that need to be surrendered to Christ. Every one of us has a place in our life that God is continuing the sanctifying work where something needs to be removed. Maybe yours this morning isn't homosexual tendencies or thoughts. Maybe it's something else in that list. Maybe it's gossip, maybe it's lust, maybe it's slander, maybe it's disobedience to parents was in that list. There's something else in that list. Or maybe it's something else that you know that God wants to work on in your heart. And it's so easy to look to someone else and so hard to sometimes look at my own heart and say, God is the great sculptor of my life. Is there something that you want to chisel out? Maybe it is a fear of other people who are different from me. Maybe it is, a, it is, it is, a, is an underlying low-grade hatred of people 
that are different from me, that, that, that started out as a hatred of, of sin, but somehow leaked out into a disdain for people. And, and maybe that's what it needs to be confessed this morning. But where in your life, where do you need to be more like Jesus? Where in your life do you need to be more like that one that we follow that was full of grace and truth and perfect in holiness and yet perfect in love? The one who, while we were yet sinners, died for us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning as broken people living in a broken world. We come before you this morning understanding that every part of our world has been tainted by sin. We come before you this morning recognizing that even this aspect, this big aspect of our sexuality has been tainted. And sometimes we do better than others and sometimes we can ignore it and sometimes we, 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 we feel like we're doing well with it, but the truth is, Lord, we need you to redeem and continue the redeeming work within us purify us and to make us more like Christ. So Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit this morning would search our hearts and if there be anything in our lives that, that as we, as Christ followers here, we would say, not only with our words, but with our actions and with our lives and with our hearts and with our prayers, that all of us is yours. That Jesus, you truly are the center of it all. That Jesus, we truly are fully yours, dying to ourselves daily. Father, so I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict where you need to convict. Lord, that you would gently, lovingly, as only you can do, call us to that place of living for you and that place that we would love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But we would not neglect that second commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would just do your work in this place. In the name of Christ, we pray.